Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Sophie Coe, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest updates from across the front lines, hear from our reporter on the ground in Ukraine, and find out how satellites are helping Ukraine beat the Russians. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 8th of June, day 105. And today, I'm joined by Dom Nichols, The Telegraph's defence and security editor, our foreign correspondent, Nicholas Smith, in Kyiv, and our US correspondent, Jamie Johnson. I started by asking Nicola what life in Kyiv is like 105 days into the war. So I'm currently in central Kyiv. Um, it's, it's actually um, a beautiful, uh, sunny, early summer day. Um, and the city is really coming back to life. Um, this is my first time in Ukraine. So um, I've just been here for a week, but I was actually quite surprised um, driving into Kyiv just to see how um, vibrant the city is just now. Um, cafes, bars, restaurants, um, offices are all open. People are, there's, there are a lot of people in the streets. Um, they're out with their families. Um, and, and life seems pretty normal here. Obviously, when you're driving into um, the city. It's, there's some very jarring sights on the way in. Um, there's still a lot of destroyed buildings, warehouses, homes, um, and you do have uh, air, ra- air raid sirens going off um, on an almost daily basis. The first day I was here, there were, there were three overnight, and um, one of them did, in fact, signal a missile strike on Kyiv, um, which was the first since the end of April. So people are very resilient and kind of trying to carry on as normal, but the, the risks are obviously still there, um, huge risks, and some politicians are also um, concerned that Russia might be um, starting to plan a second assault on Kyiv. Um, so people are just kind of trying to survive and, and, and trying to live life as normally as possible just now. And after the recent strike on Kyiv, I know Kyiv hadn't seen a strike for a little while and then at the weekend we saw this heightened tension once again. Does it feel like life has kind of locked down since then at all or is there a sense that people are just trying to live their lives as normally as possible? I haven't detected any sign of of people locking down. Um, I mean, the government has been quite clear that um, air raid sirens should be taken seriously and that people should take shelter. But when I came to my hotel, I asked, you know, is there a shelter here? And they said, well, yes, we have a basement. Here it is. And they said, but no one really uses it anymore. And and, and I certainly get that impression from from the population that um, they are just used to living with these dangers. And, and after the missile strike, we, we actually spoke to a woman who um, who lives just about two kilometres from where one of the missiles hit. Um, the, the Russians appear to have been targeting some infrastructure um, railway infrastructure and, and possibly warehouse. Um, and and she she said that she heard the air raid sirens. She kind of um, went back to sleep because it was 5 a.m. And then um, shortly afterwards, she heard five loud booms. And, and she said she just put the, the blanket back over her head, you know. And, and, and she said, so we're, we're not the same people that we were um, before February um, and I really sense that kind of um, resilience among the population that 
people are really learning to live with dangers that they shouldn't have to live with, but they're just trying to get on with, with their lives and trying to get, you know, kind of trying to go around their, their daily business. Um, and Kiev, thankfully, at the moment is, is relatively, uh, it is peaceful just now. And, and, you know, we certainly hope it stays that way. But yesterday we, we went to the outskirts of Kiev. We went to um, Irpin, the, the commuter town that was really badly hit by um, the Russian forces in the early days of the war. And it, it's, it's really hard to describe how shocking the sight is of, of um, regular homes that have just been completely destroyed um, and, you know, burnt out shells. Um, and it, it's just, you know, kind of regular residential areas. It's, it's actually quite a kind of middle class affluent town. Um, and and people's homes have just been completely taken away from them. Um, the wives as well. I, we spoke to obviously we we spoke to one man yesterday who was living in a tent. His his family are in a different part of the country, and he said, "Well, my home's destroyed. I don't know how we're going to rebuild." He said, "But at least we're alive. At least we're healthy." And so people are are very strong. They're you know mentally strong, physically strong, and they're really just trying to to carry on. And I know that recently you wrote a report that was in the the paper the other day all about a rehab centre that you visited, which I think sits with that idea of people striving to find solutions against adversity and just carry on. Can you tell us a bit more about the centre that you visited? Sure. Um, So the centre was in Lviv, which is in the west of the country. Um, And Lviv has been spared um, a lot of the destruction that's been seen on the outskirts of Kiev or, or in the rest of the country. Um, but it, it is it does have a heavy responsibility um, in terms of absorbing um, uh, traumatized citizens who've fled their homes and and trying to you know kind of rehouse them, help them to find a job, help them to settle. Um, and a big part of that has been rehabilitation. Um, many thousands of people um, have lost limbs uh, tragically. Uh, through battles, civilians and soldiers. Um, nobody really knows the full scale of, of the problem yet. The mayor of Lviv um, estimates it could be around 50,000 people who've lost limbs who will need new prosthetics. And so one of the things that he is really striving to do in Lviv is to um, build one of the world's largest rehabilitation centres. Um, and so we went to an existing state-run uh, rehabilitation centre that has a, a few hundred people there um, and we saw uh, what they're trying to do. We spoke to a psychologist who the whole process um, of, of how they help people to, to rebuild their lives um, and it's a very long process and we're only starting to see um, part of the scale of the problem now because um, it, when you when you lose a limb, then it takes several months. It takes about three months before you can even start to think about um, finding some kind of prosthetic. So um, we're starting to see people come now um, looking for them. Um, there's going to be a huge shortage of uh, limbs themselves, um, but also of experts who can help people go through the, the, the fitting process and the rehabilitation process and learning how to use the prosthetics. Um, and so we we spoke to one young man um, who's a soldier, and he lost um, he lost the lower part of his right leg uh, in March. He he was basically um, with uh, with his uh, battalion, and they were told that they had to fire on Russian tanks that were attacking a village in the east. Um, and they were climbing over a fence to find a better position. And he found himself on top of the fence, just looking, staring straight at a tank, which then fired on him. And he said his leg blew straight off. And, and this this kind of story is tragically very common here. And so he was just coming to terms with um, what that meant for him. He was at this rehabilitation centre with his wife and his two-year-old um, son. So the... Um, the centre tries to bring families when they can because it really helps with the healing process. Um, and so he was grateful for that. But you could just see the the frustration in his eyes as well. We we saw him just after the, his first consultation, and he didn't. He he was just trying to absorb the fact that um, he he might not have a high quality prosthetic for the first year. 
um, before he could move on to something more sophisticated. And he was just saying, but I can't wait a year. I just want to get back to, you know, chasing, chasing my toddler son around. Um, and I, I want to get back to work. I want to, you know, join the police. And so you can see it's going to be psychologically and physically, it's going to be a really ro- long road for a lot of people and, and a, a huge cost to pay for for individuals, you know, from from uh, Putin's war, it's going to it's going to basically change lives forever. Definitely. Um, I also wanted to ask you. I know you've been reporting on the situation for foreign fighters, and you've you've been speaking to both those within Ukraine and those outside of Ukraine who have who have been coming to fight. Can you tell us about the people that you met there? Sure. Um, so I met uh, one British uh, British guy, Matthew Robinson. Um, he is currently with the Georgian Legion, um, and he is one of dozens of trainers, foreign trainers, um, who are trying to help uh, local um, defence forces, the territorial defence forces. Um, they're trying to train people up um, in basic um, battle tactics and how to use weapons. Um, you know, th- there's such a need on the front lines just now. President Zelensky um, recently said that that um, they could be losing up to 100 soldiers a day. And so on the front lines, you've got a combination of the conventional forces and also the, the territorial defence forces who have less experience. Um, so one of um, Matthew is, is one of several trainers um, who is basically just trying to train people as, as quickly as possible. And, and you know, it's, it's not an ideal situation. Um, a lot of people are going to the front lines with very little training at all. But you, you just have to do what, what, what you can do when there's such an unexpected and, and invasion on this scale. Um, and so he said he initially came to... Um, Ukraine because he wanted to fight on the front lines. He describes a kind of chaotic scene um, in the early weeks of the war, which you would imagine, um, you know, nobody nobody expected an invasion like this. Um, so he, he said he had experience in Iraq and, and also with the US military in Germany, and he wanted to put his skills to good use. Um, he, he expressed some frustration that um, the lack of equipment um, for uh, foreign fighters or and, and also for local uh, fighters, there's, there's, there are still shortfalls in things like um, uh, protective gear, flak jackets, helmets, um, and sometimes ammunition. Um, it, it seems that the front lines are now better supplied, but there are some units who's, who are still lacking um, basics. So he's trying to... Um, procure that he's trying to get donations from abroad and he's also trying to kind of use his skill set to, to train um, local people so he said that he was working mainly with americans um ex-military um the, he said there were about 40 foreign trainers but there's also um another group called the international legion of territorial defense um and so we're just talking to them this week as well just to kind of try and get a sense of of how many uh, fighters they have in their ranks and and um, there are certainly anecdotes of foreign fighters um, being on the front lines supporting the territorial defense forces there there was a report last week that three had actually been killed including an Australian and, and the Frenchman um, so they're definitely here but it, it it does sound like in the early days of the war that um, because it was a confusing and chaotic situation that that some did leave as well um, and and kind of went back home. Thanks, Nikki. Now, on, on the subject of these um, foreign fighters coming from across the globe, um, two British men, Aidan Ashling and Sean Pinner, um, have found themselves, they came over to Ukraine to fight. They're now imprisoned in a Russian jail. Um, and I know that there's been developments in their situation today. Dom Nichols, can you give an, us an update on um, the situation for um, Aidan and Sean? Sure. Hi, Sophie. Thanks for that. Uh, and hi, everybody. So Aidan Azin, 28-year-old British guy, Sean Pinner, 48. They've been fighting. They were in the Azovstal plant down in, in Mariupol uh, and had to surrender eventually as, as many many of the um, Ukrainian... Oh, they were with the, the Marine force down there, the U- Ukrainian Marines. Um, they've, they are now being tried by Russia, uh, along with a Moroccan guy, um, charged with being mercenaries. Now, they... They dispute this. They say they've been they've had long long standing ties to the country and they've been in the military for a number of years. They haven't just gone over in the last few weeks. Um, but it's brought into sharp focus this whole 
issue of foreign fighters and and what what happens to them now this is we've got to make a distinction here this is different from the trials that the, the three convictions in ukrainian courts for war crimes and under ukrainian legislation remember the, the that chap the tank commander who shot the um, ukrainian man on the bicycle who was using his mobile phone and and uh and the guy that shot him said that we thought he had been passing information on their on their movements. So that was that was tried for that was murder. He was tried and convicted of murder and given a life sentence. So those those kind of war crimes are are, are different from from what's happening here with these with these Brits, Aslin and Pinner. Um, the big concern here is is that Russia said that the the charges they that's been levied against them can carry the death sentence. Now there's a whole. Um, level different legal distinctions between whether you're, you're you're a fighter or you're a civilian whether you're a combatant whether you're order combat i.e if you've been you've been injured and even though you are you are a, a uniformed combatant you are not taking any part in hostilities and not able to offer a threat to the to the enemy um and all of those are distinct from whether or not you're a, a mercenary are you you are you are paid to fight um different jurisdictions have different legal definitions of what it what it is to be a mercenary some would view that um, I mean we've got to be careful about the term mercenary as well because the the foreign legion in the Ukrainian army are foreign nationals who have I don't know if they swear an oath to to Ukraine but they have to sign a contract for I think it's a couple of years but they are then uh, uh, constituted parts of the Ukrainian military so they wear a uniform you have to wear an identifiable badge I think the the Geneva Convention say you this is the little flag that most people wear on their on their left shoulder um, you don't want it so big that it, it sticks out as a target, but you do have to to wear a badge that that can can be identifiable and show that you are a um, you belong to a a national force. This is in the original invasion of Ukraine in 2014. You remember the little green men, which we all very very strongly suspected were Russian soldiers, just just without their badges on. So under the UN conventions, you've got to be identifiable as the, the to, to belong to a force, and that is what the Foreign Legion of the Ukrainian Army are. Um, so they would dispute they would say well they aren't they are not mercenaries D- different for example in the russian forces with the wagner group who who are is a private military company um and probably come under the, the definition of mercenary so these two brits Aslin and, and pinner are being tried as as mercenaries under russian law they are in um they're still in the donbass they're in the in the the russian separatist held areas of of ukraine so they're not in russia proper yet but uh, as i say it does carry under their legal procedure uh, the, the death sentence uh, and it would be very interesting to see what's going to happen here i mean I, I i would think it'd be extraordinary if they if they were if the death sentence was actually carried out um but then i think it's extraordinary this whole thing anyway um however if they're given a an extended jail sentence for example then that's that that's treating them as a civilian and the Ukrainians would say, "Well, no, they are they are combatants. They are legal combatants. So, right, you've, you, they surrendered. You've you've got them. They need to go to a prison of war camp, which needs to be administered by the International Committee of the Red Cross, or not administered by, but has have access. Um, the International Committee of the Red Cross has to have, have access to those prisoners of war camp. They are um, accorded certain rights and privileges as prisoners of war, and they are recognised as combatants who who are prisoners of war, not civilians that t- took up arms, although." Even in that situation, if you are a civilian and you've clearly taken up arms against an aggressor, you for the period that you have taken up arms, you are a combatant. So there's a, there's a whole load of legal stuff here, but these guys should be should they shouldn't be under, um, subject to any civilian law. They are um, soldiers and and they should be treated as prisoners of war. Now I would have thought Russia are going to try and use this as a as an example. So I would expect them. Maybe they will get the the death sentence and it'll be commuted to life or something like this, which just in, in itself would be would be outrageous. But I wouldn't be surprised if Russia used this as an example to to try and weaken the um, the draw from from the international community to go and join the Ukrainian Foreign Legion. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if these guys are treated as civilians and tried in a civil court and given a a, a, a sanction, a jail term, then I would have thought Russia would, would use that to try and dissuade other people from joining. So it's one to watch. It's it's a very, in many ways, very complicated case, um, which we will 
uh, we'll get some legal expertise, I think, and we'll really dig into this because I don't think this is going to be uh, the, the, the only example of this this type of case we see. But uh, yeah, that, that trial, such as it is, is, is going on now and we will watch you with keen interest. Thanks, Dom. And I wanted to zoom out slightly now onto a more diplomatic question beyond these kind of individual personal stories that we've heard from both you and Nikki. Um, so today, Germany's Chancellor, um, Olaf Scholz, appeared to claim that he was doing more to support Ukraine than Britain was because he suggested that only the US had sent more military aid to Kiev. Now, I know yesterday on on yesterday's podcast, which our listeners can listen back to on their podcast apps, you were relatively um, critical of Germany's um, response to Ukraine. How do you respond to Schultz's um, statement? And also, could you give us an update on the other diplomatic puzzle pieces that have been putting into place over the last 24 hours? Yeah. So firstly, on, on Germany, I'm not going to get into a, a sort of locked horns match about what counts as aid, if it's lethal aid or humanitarian aid or economic and financial aid and what have you. But I would just suggest that people look at the Kiel Institute for the World Economy. This is a think tank based in Germany, as the name suggests, um, that is that is seen as, as, as the go-to place for this. And and, and they are saying that, um, that actually you know, Germany is not sending as much military aid as, as the US, as Poland, as, as the UK. However, the Kiel Institute does say they are sending, Germany is sending more than France and Canada and, and others. But I'd invite people to go and, Go and have a look at that at the think tank, um, and make make your own mind up if you if you don't want to sort of take my <laughs> opinion for it. But um, the Kiel Institute, uh, uh, we we report that widely they're a well regarded think tank, internationally regarded think tank. Uh, we're not the only um, media outlet to to re- refer to them and use their statistics, but uh, they 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 say they got it in black and white. I made absolutely sure before I came on today. Just went and had had another look at the uh, look at the think tank, and yeah, they're, they're saying that that. That UK sending more aid than um, than Germany. I mean, you know, we've got to be careful here. We we don't we don't want to get into a sort of tit for tat because if it's if it's a little bit more or a little bit less of not very much, that's not that's not great. Any side of the fence you're on. If it's a little bit more or a little bit less of loads of stuff, then that's quite a nice problem to have. Now, I don't as you as you may as you remember from yesterday, I was, no, I was warmly critical of our uh, colleagues and allies in Germany about what's being sent when and, and how much and what's promised and so on. Um, so I'd, I, I think we are, we're not, we're not quite arguing about how much, uh, how, how much stuff has been sent saying, yeah, there's been, there's been loads and we're just wrangling about who's, who's on top. I think Germany can do more here, should do more. I think Schultz knows that. I mean, it's, it's a, but for him to even make those comments, it, it says, suggests that he's feeling a little bit, a little bit bruised on this. Um, and they can very easily change this, turn this around by, by being overt about what they're, what they're supplying. The, the point I made yesterday was that, that Germany apparently is, is supplying 100 Marder infantry fighting vehicles from their, from their old stocks because they're upgrading their Marder uh, infantry vehicles to, to another uh, vehicle, Puma, I think. Um, and they are sending 100 Marder to Greece for Greece to send 100... Uh, oh, sorry, I don't know the, the quantity, but to, for Greece to send BMP-1, um, Russian made uh, or soviet made so vintage made infantry fighting vehicles pretty old stock not brilliant russia haven't fared well with them in the war so far so i was suggesting yesterday actually it would just be better for, for germany to send the marders rather than do this convoluted deal so i think germany is is um yeah you know, i think it's fair criticism of german of germany at the moment i think schultz's statement is um i mean i don't know what he was looking at to suggest that i mean they probably probably got their own it's not not unheard of for governments to rely on their own research and turns out that they're doing a great job and number one of the heap. Um, but yeah, I would just invite people to go and have a look at the Kiel Institute for the World Economy. That's the think tank we use. That's the think tank that many other people use, internationally well regarded, and, and that all, the, all the figures are there. Um, briefly elsewhere, um, so we were talking grain yesterday and and, and the, the continued difficulties getting anything out of Ukraine in anything like the numbers, the, the, the quantities that... that, that should be to keep uh, um, the whole world economy in terms of grain exports and an aid for this in this regard going. Um, now, Sergey Lavrov, the uh, Russian foreign minister, is in is in Turkey today uh, with his opposite number, and he was saying 
Here's a quote. We are ready to ensure the safety of ships that leave Ukraine's ports. We're ready to do this in cooperation with our Turkish colleagues. Uh, that's the end of the quote. He, he's saying the onus was on Ukraine to demine the ports in order to resume the grain shipments and said there's no action required by Russia. It had already made all the necessary commitments. So classic, classic diversion from Russia. I mean, they're saying, look, you know, it's not us. There's nothing we can do. We've done as much as we can. Who else could be expected to do more? I mean, crikey, if it wasn't for any of those pesky Ukrainians that didn't want to sell their grain to the world and, and ship it out to the, to the most poverty-stricken parts of the planet, oh, we'd be in clover. So, you know, I don't, I don't believe a word of this. Unhelpfully, his, his opposite number, the foreign minister for, for Turkey, uh, here's another quote, um, if we need to open up the international market to Ukrainian grain, we see the removal of obstacles standing in the way of Russia's exports as a legitimate demand, as a legitimate demand. I don't think that's a very helpful comment from Turkey, firstly, because you know, to say it's a legitimate demand um, well, I mean, it is a legitimate demand to get the grain out, but it doesn't legitimise Russia's actions. And secondly, the, 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 the use of the words there, uh, blah, 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 standing in the way of Russia's exports. It's not Russia's exports. Most of it's Ukraine's. They've just been, they've just nicked it. So, you know, they're, they're reframing it in this way is not helpful at all. Um, and of course, what's the, what are Russia going to demand to get this grain out? It's um, lessening of sanctions or or. That's the most obvious, but there could be there could be something else. But it would be lessening of sanctions at least, and there may maybe some more. So Lavrov saying, "Yeah, we're we're perfectly ready to ensure the safety of ships." It's like it's like there's some some external Independence Day alien invasion creating this threat to the ships. I mean, the, ensuring the safety of the ships, you can ensure that, mate, by not shooting at them when they when they try and come out of the ports. Um, so I think this is classic Russian diversionary tactics. It's not helpful we would otherwise be able to to write it off as, as a bit more um lavrosisms if it hadn't been for the i think fairly unhelpful comments from turkey there um talking about legitimate demands and russia's exports so um the debate rumbles on at least it is now a a daily talk piece about about grain and supplies and international aid so that's the that's the one positive we should take from it we now need to see a very robust response from the un you may remember yesterday when um, the uh, EU uh, Commissioner uh, Charles Michel took the took Russia's ambassador to task about saying that he was using grain or Russia was using grain as a stealth weapon, and um, and uh, Russia's ambassador stormed out of the Security Council saying it was all lies. So you know it is coming to a head. It is an it is now a daily talk um, piece, which is good. I don't think these comments are helpful from Turkey, and I think Lavrov's comments can just be written off as the kind of stuff we would. We, we would expect. Thanks, Dom. Um, and Nikki, I was interested to hear from you just to go back to Dom's thought at the beginning about um, the Schultz's comments and whether whether or how much Germany was helping Ukraine. On the ground, have you seen a difference between how Ukrainians think of the UK and how they think of Germany or even France? Yes, absolutely. There's a vast gulf between what they they think of the UK and, and Germany. Um, and without going into the details of, of who's been um, donating what or offering what support, um, ordinary Ukrainians, um, in terms of their perception of the UK and Germany, the UK has certainly won hearts and minds um, with its military and political support in Ukraine. Um, Ukrainians are constantly saying how grateful they are to the UK and how much they admire and respect Boris Johnson and, um, and his, his strong stance on, on Ukraine. You certainly don't hear the same about Germany or uh, Schultz. Um, by comparison, people are, are kind of very scathing towards the, the German uh, response. Um, I'm working with a, a young local translator who keeps showing me internet memes and jokes that are going around in WhatsApp groups about about Germany's response. Um, you know, for example, he showed me one with the, uh, a snail with a bullet on its back heading towards the front lines. Um, there was a comparison of German support with giving out ice cream cones. Um, so, so people are really quite disappointed. The general public, the people we've spoken to, say how disappointed they are with the with um, Germany's response. Um, and by contrast, they are, they they love Boris Johnson. Yesterday, we we did a kind of small fun story about a cafe in the centre of Kiev that had created a Boris Johnson croissant. 
um, just you know because they said they they wanted to show their their gratitude towards the British Prime Minister for his support. Um, and by the time we got to the cafe, it had sold out. So I I think that certainly. Um, Germany um, is not being viewed very favourably by the Ukrainian public in general, but but the, the UK is. Thanks so much, Nikki. And I should say that if our listeners want to see the photo of the Boris Johnson croissant, it's on the Telegraph's website. You just need to go to the world section because it is surprisingly um, akin to the British Prime Minister. Um, now, I think we should move on to speak to Jamie Johnson, who is our US correspondent. Now, Jamie went to the headquarters of um, Maxar Technologies, which is he will tell you a lot more about. Um, but it is a company that is helping the Ukrainians um, to beat the Russians in a number of ways. And all I know about Maxar is that I often see the name in the corner of very important photographs. So, Jamie, I wondered if you could start by telling us what exactly Maxar do. Hi there. Um, no, absolutely. It's uh, it's brilliant. These stories are always some of the best to report on because you go somewhere completely different and you just sit there for hours and you just learn so much. Um, so I went to this Maxar Technologies, uh, which, as you say, we've seen it pop up in the corner, the watermark of all the satellite photos from Ukraine. Uh, but they've got loads of clients. Their their technology is actually underlying uh, the underlying technology for Google Maps, for instance. So they've got four satellites at, at the moment. They're building six more are going to come on stream later this year. They circle the globe. Um, they circle the globe. I think it's at ten thousand miles an hour. Um, so about every ninety four minutes, they uh, circle the Earth, um, and they are capturing seven point five mile swathes of land at a time. And so 10 years ago, this would have taken a day, maybe two days to uh, get the imaging, to work out what's happening, to, to find exactly the right areas to look at. Uh, it may be that the defence organisations are saying, can you look here? It may be that they themselves are flagging it to their clients. Uh, but now they can do this in a matter of hours. So military generals in Ukraine are seeing images, looking at where the Russian battalions are, looking at where they're moving their artillery across fields, looking at where the tanks are lining up in the forests, um, and they can move accordingly and they can work out where their resupply lines. Um, and it's just another tool in the armory that's absolutely fascinating um, in this conflict. And what kind of incidents have they managed to capture so far in Ukraine? So there's, there's two things. One is sort of preemptive and one is retrospective. And I think the retrospective stuff comes into when we look at war crimes tribunals. So the examples of that would be the bodies on the streets in Bucha would be the obvious ones. Um, we obviously saw the pictures on the ground taken by photographers and people who were there. I know our Daniel Sheridan went there. Um, but the Russians tried to claim, hang on a second, we were gone by the time this had happened. This wasn't us. This must have been other people. Um, satellite imagery clearly shows the Russians were in the area. And the satellite images is good enough to show those bodies were on the ground when they were there, which is terrible. But it's, 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 it's necessary to hold russia accountable for these crimes so that's a retrospective part then you've got the preemptive part and the first time i think we really saw these images was when uh the sort of infamous 40 mile long resupply convoy um, i spoke to the ceo and i spoke to their sort of head of news at maxar and they said this was really one of the turning points in in the war uh being able to zoom out and show this picture being able to show exactly what's going on um really gave the world a sort of wake-up call being hang on a second this is not just artillery this is not just uh, you know the movement of troops around the fringes they are trying to penetrate the heart of this country they are trying to move an enormous convoy to Kiev, uh, and i think from then everyone has sort of uh, sort of taken a real notice of these pictures and what kind of incidents have they managed to capture so far in ukraine Yes, so they've started working a, a lot more with the Ukrainians. They've got a long-standing relationship with the Five Eyes countries. Um, so obviously the UK, UK uh, Canada, New Zealand, Australia and the US. Um, and they do a lot of work with the US government anyway. But they are, they've opened up a lot of their sort of technology to Ukraine. Um, and uh, the, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a relationship which goes both ways. Um, sometimes it'll be the Maxar staff having a look, particularly at places like Sevilla, Donetsk or, or, or wherever, and saying, hang on a second, look, we are noticing there's the movement of troops, there's the movement of artillery, there's, there's, this, is, this place is being shelled. They're obviously trying to soften it up before sending troops through on the ground. Or 
the Ukrainians or the UK or the US will have their own intelligence, which they've got from other sources, and say, hang on a second, we're seeing chatter on Telegram or we're seeing talks elsewhere saying there could be a movement over here. And then you point the satellites in the right direction. So it goes both ways. And that's sort of a, a, you know, the good relationship that they have. Jamie, can I ask a question, please? Firstly, it's great, great to hear you, mate. The Riviera kid is back in uh, back in town. Great to great to hear. Um, when you visited Maxar, um, so this company, as I understand it, they they came from the insurance business. Is that right? So they're looking, they're using the satellite imagery to look at how far the wildfire spread or how far the the flood spread and and which which uh, homes and businesses should be compensated and that kind of thing. I think that's where they came from. Please correct me if I'm wrong as i probably am but the point i'm making is that they weren't set up as a as, as a military supporting company from the from the get-go and i just wonder if that had come through in any of the um, morals and ethics of the of the people working there had had any anyone working there uh, that now see what their product is being used for were, were any of them a bit uncomfortable with that or were they overtly supportive of it did they not care that there's a military application and the flip side of that is the security how how tight is the security because if this stuff is is um likely to be used in the future in any war crimes tribunals as i as i think it probably will be i don't think the national governments will give up their super secret imagery so this stuff is good enough to be presented to court um so if there's a security angle there now, how how hot are they on security and getting and making sure their employees are safe and making sure that people aren't trying to infiltrate these companies to, to discredit them for any future future legal proceedings? No, of course. So they have actually been working with military for quite a long time. They've got clients, um, including people like Google, but they have been working with the US and they've actually just signed a $3.2 billion 10-year deal with the US government. Um, but going back, you're, you're right in the sense that some of their best work that I've seen uh, involved, for instance, illegal fishing out in China, uh, out of uh, uh, using Chinese ships. Sorry, so they were able to say, you know, it was I think it was it was seafood for slavery or slavery for seafood. It was a thing they did with the Associated Press. So they're not just about the military. That's that's absolutely correct. But I think they found a real purpose here. The impression I got uh, from all of them is that they, they realized they were doing something that was genuinely making a difference. They abhor the, uh, the, the, the invasion by Russia and, and they, they want to be able to help and facilitate. Now, they were quite difficult to pin down on exactly what they were doing because obviously it's sort of confidential client relationships. So, so they're not able to say, oh, yes, we've, we've passed this information on this morning. But they use these brilliant examples of how this can be a tool. So going back to Afghanistan, for instance, when the withdrawal last summer, um, they were using their satellites, training their satellites and helping the US government because what they noticed was that all of a sudden when the US was withdrawing and the Taliban was sweeping through, they noticed lots and lots of choke points they hadn't seen before on motorways and queues of, of cars backed up and backed up and backed up. And when they looked closely, they realized that the Taliban had been setting up checkpoints. And obviously we now know that but they didn't really know that at the time. So they were able to feed that information back to the US and feed it back to their partners on the ground in Afghanistan and say, look, we can't tell you what to do, but we are showing you these pictures. This is going to be a really hard place to pass. You're going to need to go somewhere else. And so I think the military actions are really important. And they, they do see as they're, they're playing a humanitarian role. If, if any of this comes to war crime tribunals, if any of this comes comes to sort of fruition, not only are they making a difference at the moment, but they can make a difference in the future. And I think they see that sort of higher, bigger calling as, as something that's really important to them. Thanks. That's fascinating stuff. And just, just one final one, if I may. So they're, they're based in Colorado, I think. I think I saw that from your um, from your article. Great. Um, so you're you're normally a kind of Washington rat, you know, going around the, the corridors of power and all the rest of it. How was there a difference in view from the, the people you're focusing, uh, speaking to out in the Midwest? Is that do they view the, the, the war very differently? Any kind of difference of opinion there? I think not. I think I, I think in all seriousness, it's it's it, it, the, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone uh, around here, even tuning into uh, sort of quite right wing people uh, on the on the news in the evening. The, the general um, viewpoint here is that this is a terrible thing. The only slight movement, I think, um, which is more to the far right, is 
the US is giving a lot of money. There's no doubt about that. They give in tens of billions of dollars. And with everything that's going on in the US at the moment, there's obviously huge national debates on things like abortion, on gun control, uh, and education. Donald Trump, who, you know, is still a massive figure in the Republican Party, it was one of the first people to say, hang on a second, we're spending tens of billions of dollars over here in in, in Ukraine. But what about people in our country? That's the only movement I've seen um, so far. And I think that, that, that as time goes on, the, the longer the conflict goes on, you will see people, more people question the amount of money being given when there are obviously, same as in the UK with the cost of living, the, the inflation over here is 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 really high. Petrol prices are really high over here. So people are going to be starting to wonder, is there another use for this uh, US taxpayer money? Um, that's where I'd say the movement was. Otherwise, no, they, they deplore the invasion uh, and, and Russia needs to be held accountable. Thanks so much, Jamie. Um, we've got one question that I wanted to move on to from a listener. Now, um, do not hesitate to DM Dom or me or um, email podcast at telegraph.co.uk um, with a question because we do put them, we do read them all and we do put them to our um, experts. So the, um, there's a question from Hina here that I think probably I'll direct towards you, Dom, which is ask for the latest update on the control of Snake Island. So Snake Island, that very important um, island that right at the beginning of the war became a kind of symbol um, of Ukrainian might after the um, soldiers stood up to a Russian warship. Um, Dom, can you give us the latest update on on the situation in Stake Island? Yeah, of course. And and thanks for the question. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, in fact, probably a bit more than that, um, in my sort of final thoughts for the day, I kept saying, keep your eye on the northeast and the southwest. And the northeast was the, the Ukrainian counterattacks around Kharkiv and the southwest was what was happening on Snake Island. Um, and so we uh, we did owe it to you to to come back and and, uh, and report. We, we've been keeping our eyes on that. Um, yeah, so Snake Island is, uh, just, just a reminder, a very small little dot of dot of rock in the northwest corner of the of the black sea but it is it is critical for control of the water around there uh from russia's view freedom of movement in the black sea and and any potential amphibious uh landing in odessa would be almost impossible if they didn't hold snake island and um for ukraine it's all those things plus uh, helping to get the grain out, even when we can, with a with a, a maritime corridor. So, so small small piece of uh, real estate, but hugely important to whoever whoever holds it. The latest update we got was on Monday this week, two days ago, from from Britain's uh, defence intelligence uh, community from the MOD here, and they said that that uh, it's a very dis- it's disputed. Um, it has been disputed the Snake Island over the last few months well from day one of this war currently thought to be held in russian hands and russia have been seen putting on uh, sa-15s and sa-22 air defense systems onto the island they are um, short and medium range air defense systems that would uh, that would then put an umbrella over the top of the northwest part of the black sea so if there are these uh, sa-15s sa-22s on the island that is uh, important for for russia um, since the Moskva, the, 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 the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, was sunk, Russia's not wanted to put much of its Black Sea Fleet anywhere near the coast of Ukraine. Um, and so if it wasn't able to put things on Snake Island, it would have to put those ships in harm's way. So, so by holding Snake Island and putting air defence assets on it, it means that they can keep the rest of their fleet in the in the comparative safety back towards the Sevastopol port in Crimea. Um, now, Ukraine have shown themselves very good at at blowing stuff up on Snake Island. So keep your eye on on there again. Keep your eye on the southwest because I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if um, if Ukraine now have a go and they 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 use drones in the past to um, to attack things on Snake Island with the inflow of heavy artillery and these MLRS multiple launch rocket systems uh, to the country. And they are probably in range. I think, I think it's, what are they, 15 miles? Snake Island, I think it's 15 miles off the coast, which will be in range of MLRS. So so very likely that, that it's about to get quite noisy there again. Um, this, I'm sure, will go hand in hand with the debate about um, maritime corridors, get, get the grain out. Um, but it also, it's critical for Ukraine 
to, as for the reasons I've said, to, to hold Snake Island, but also to draw the Black Sea fleet out. When we talk sort of bigger picture about what's going to cause this war to end, Russia has lost now. Um, I mentioned yesterday I had lunch with a very senior defence source, and he said that Russia's lost 25% of its ground forces, 25% of the entire Russian ground forces in this war, not just the forces that went in, but 25% of the whole lot. I mean, that's colossal. Um, but Russia has got a massive navy, a very good submarine um, fleet, a um, you know, long-range hypersonic missiles, space systems, cyber. So there's lots of other things. Russia's still still very powerful. But if you sink the Black Sea Fleet or render it inoperable by sinking two or three more ships, then I, I wonder if that would be the time when Putin says, enough's enough, uh, we, need to, we need to draw stumps here and, and, and start negotiating. So I think Snake Island will, will increase in importance not that it has never really been far, low down the list, but I think it will increase in importance over the next few weeks as um, the grain issue comes to a head and as the um, heavy rocket systems go in to, to Ukraine um, and thoughts of what will it take to, to, to push Putin on the back foot and make him sue for peace. Uh, when all these issues come to a head, um, I, th- I, think, uh, oh, sorry, I think those issues are going to come to a head in the, in the near future. Thanks so much, Dom. Um, I think we're nearing towards the end of the time we have today. Um, but I wanted to move to all three of you for your final thoughts. So, um, Nikki, I'm sure we'll talk to you again um, before your time in Ukraine um, comes to an end. But what would you like to leave our listeners with today of an idea of of the situation in the capital? Uh, well, I, so far, you know, we, we've only been to Lviv and Kiev. Um, we're heading further east um, uh, later this week. But I think, you know, my first impressions of this country, I've just been so um, just blown away by how um, hardy the, the Ukrainians are, how, you know, how they've adapted to such incredible tragedy that both personal and just, you know, that has struck the country in, in general and, and just how they're, they're keeping positive, upbeat. They're really trying to kind of um, carry on as normally as possible and, and, and how focused they are um, on, on countering uh, this invasion and countering this, um, authoritarianism um, from Russia, um, not only for their their own country, but you know, people keep saying to me, um, "This is this is important for the rest of Europe, for the rest of the world." You know, we don't want to see uh, Russia win because then that's going to enable dictators and authoritarians um, around the world. And and so they they really have a a, a huge sense of um, a higher higher purpose as to you know what their goal is. Um, and just on the ground in in Kiev, it's such a it's such a beautiful, vibrant, creative city. Um, and and I've said this I said this earlier in the podcast, but um, I'm just so taken aback and impressed by how incredibly resilient people are. So so that's what I'd like to leave you with. Thanks, Nicola. And um, yeah, here here to that. Um, in terms of you, Jamie Johnson, what? Are your final thoughts um, for the day, having seen so much amazing technology at Maxar and what they're doing to help? Um, I think, I mean, I, I think actually it's worth making a point throwing it forwards. There's an interesting uh, piece of intelligence that's emerged this morning that I'm going to start writing about after this, um, is that the US is saying it lacks a sort of clear picture of what Ukraine's sort of war strategy and intelligence is. And and actually, intelligence agencies seem to know far more about what Russia's military is doing, um, despite the fact that they are shipping sort of billions of dollars to weapons to the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have admitted that they're not actually telling America everything. They're keeping the intelligence, some of it to themselves, as countries do. Um, but it'll be quite interesting to see how this relationship sort of plays out. Uh, Ukraine is obviously very keen to project itself, not just on the world stage, but also to its allies saying, we are powerful, we are defending, we are going to keep fighting, we're going to do this. But but eventually, as I, as I went back to the money earlier, the flow is not endless. And so they don't seem to want to give an impression that they're they're sort of losing or that they're slowing down. Um, despite, as you say, as I think Nikki said earlier, the reports of 100 troops a day uh, being killed. So it'll be an interesting one to watch. The the idea that the US knows more about Russian military than they do about the Ukrainian military strategy, I think is quite interesting. And I think definitely one to watch going forwards. Thanks, Jamie. And Dom Nichols, to you for the final word. 
Thanks, Sophie. I'll just uh, draw people's attention to the way Russia's acting at the moment. Shown um, very, very difficult to get any military success on the on the battlefield or, or very limited success at a very high cost. So just starting to escalate sideways. And what I mean by that is uh, it's difficult to escalate up. Um, we don't like Russia talking about nuclear weapons and constantly threatening nuclear weapons. But actually, we kind of got over our shock the first few weeks when it was referred to quite a lot. Um, we, we've we got over that initial shock and actually we're now, I think Western leaders have realised that they've got decades of nuclear diplomacy upon which they can draw to, about how to handle these conversations and how to think of it as a subject. So the, the sort of nuclear escalation seems to have, have lost lost its power a little bit. So Russia's escalating sideways. The legal stuff that we said earlier on about these uh, these captured Brits, about whether they'll be used as a test case to try and um, discourage other people from joining the Ukrainian Foreign Legion because Russia won't won't accept them as combatants. They will say that they are they are mercenaries and therefore they are subject to a long spell in prison or the death penalty. So I think they're going to try and escalate sideways through the legal um, legal strand and they're going to escalate sideways through sanctions. Every every opportunity through the politics, they're going to try and draw down these sanctions. Which again, the the comments today from Turkey's foreign minister about uh, Russia's legitimate demand and the Russia's exports of Ukrainian grain. I think these are unhelpful comments. Russia will be delighted that these comments are being made, and they will they will um, look for every opportunity to 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 push that line through through the politics. So I think we're going to see as the as the battle itself seems to be calcifying along a, a new line of control. Then I think we'll see these other strands uh, coming into play. And um, the the Gerasimov doctrine, if you like, this this so-called Russian ability to use power in all other other spheres of, of human activity, not just the military sphere, and um, for which they are vaunted as as, as masters. We're, we're going to see if it's you know if they are if they are as good in that area as as they say they are. Ukraine, the latest, is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Jaden Irving. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.